Welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church. My name is Pastor Will. Thanks for joining our podcast. This is where you'll be able to find all of our sermons, as well as special devotionals and interviews. We hope these messages inspire hope and bring support as you grow on your journey of faith. If you have any questions, or if you want further conversation, or if you simply like what you hear, connect with Asbury through our Facebook page or by checking our website at asburymaitland.org. Well, a young man went to his pastor one day for counsel, and he was pretty upset. He said, Pastor, I have to confess something to you. Uh, I've been battling a sin. You see, I come to worship every single Sunday morning, and I look around the people of the congregation, and I can't help but think, I'm the most handsome person here. I'm the most attractive person here. I'm the best-looking person here by far. And I know I shouldn't think this way, but I do. You've got to help me with this. Well, the pastor calmly said, son, I wouldn't worry about it too much. In your case, it's not a sin. It's just a terrible mistake. <laughs> well, we tend to place a lot of value on personal appearance, don't we? Many of us would not want to admit this, but every single day, we do make judgments about people. We don't know based on the way they look, based on the way they appear. Uh, we live in a world, and you can see this graphic up here on the screen, but we live in a world where dating apps invite us on our phone to swipe right on the people whom we deem attractive without knowing anything about them, and to swipe left on the people whom we deem unattractive. And thankfully, Facebook doesn't serve this purpose anymore, but even Facebook, you've heard of Facebook before, haven't you? The famous social media platform. Facebook got started 20 years ago, in 2003, as a way of ranking college students based on their level of physical attraction to the person who was ranking them. And again, thankfully, Facebook does not serve that purpose anymore. Suffice it to say that as humans, we are obsessed with the outside, aren't we? And along with this, we often overlook those inward qualities that really matter. And the truth is, this is not a new thing. It's not a new phenomenon. We have been doing this for a very long time. Uh, 3,000 years ago, there was a man in the Bible named David. And God used David in a mighty way to lead God's people as king during a critical time. But what you may not know about David, and you've probably heard of David before, he's a well-known Bible figure, but what you may not know about David is David was almost overlooked for the role of king. Even though David possessed the one inward quality that matters, the quality that God looks for in all of us whenever we're seeking to serve God and be used by God in this world. And so folks, what I want to do this morning in this sermon is I want to have some fun with you. It's okay to have some fun, isn't it? I want to have some fun. I want to dive in. I'm going to explore David's story so that we can discern together this inward quality that David had, that David possessed, and how, by God's grace, we can embrace this quality and apply this quality in our own lives and our own journey with God. Sound favorable to you? Well, to properly understand David's story, we first have to understand some of the events that led up to his story. Not necessarily all the events, because there were a lot of events, but at least some of the events, some of the backstory. So around 1200 B.C., we're going back in time, 
Around 1200 BC, 1200 years before Jesus, God leads the Israelites, his chosen nation, out of slavery in Egypt. As you may recall, uh, the Israelites were suffering under the yoke of Pharaoh. They cried out to God for deliverance. God sent Moses. Moses leads the people of God out of Egypt. And then after a 40-year detour in the wilderness or the desert, the Israelites finally take possession of the promised land, the land that God promised their ancestors, going all the way back to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the book of Genesis, the land of Canaan. But then, after the Israelites settled down in the promised land, they noticed something. They noticed that virtually every single nation around them, every neighboring nation, every nearby nation has a king. But the Israelites don't have a king because who's their king? Say it louder. God is their king. God is their ruler. And there's no better ruler to have than God. Amen? But unfortunately, the Israelites don't see it this way. Instead, they play the comparison game. They say, well, that's not fair. You ever heard this before? How come everybody else gets a king and we don't get a king? I remember when I was a kid growing up, I would say to my mom, well, I should be able to do such and such because so-and-so is able to do it. And what would my mom say? Well, if so-and-so jumped off a bridge, would you jump off a bridge too? And sarcastically, what would I say? Yeah, I would do that. But this is not too far off from what the Israelites do. They play this comparison game. Well, they have a king. We should have a king too. Well, during this time, there's this man named Samuel. Can you say this name with me? Samuel. Samuel is a judge. He's actually the last judge over Israel. And he's also a prophet. In other words, he's a messenger of God. He is one of the few people in all of Israel who has a direct line with Almighty God. And so what happens is the people of Israel approach Samuel one day. And I kid you not, this is in the Bible. You can verify this if you'd like to do that. Um, but they approach Samuel one day, and they don't understand the art of buttering somebody up before you ask for something. This is what they say to Samuel. Hey, Samuel, you're really old. It's a nice way to begin a conversation, isn't it? You're old. Your sons are corrupt. They don't follow God like you do. We know that you're not going to be with us for much longer. So before you pass away, we want you to appoint us a king so that we can be like everybody else. And this request really distresses Samuel, who has spent his entire life trying to lead the people of God into relationship with God, into embracing God's purposes. So Samuel goes back to God, and then he comes back to the people of Israel, and he says, you don't know what you're asking for. You don't realize how good you have it. Trust me, you don't want an earthly king. All an earthly king is going to do is hike up your taxes. Nobody likes to pay more in taxes, do they? Well, all an earthly king is going to do is hike up your taxes and, and take away your land and have your sons and your daughters serve his purposes. If I were you, I would be content with having the king that you already have. Be content with having God as your king. But the people don't listen to Samuel. Instead, they insist and they persist. We want a king we want a king. We want a king. They become like a child throwing a temper tantrum because the child isn't getting in their way. You ever been there before? Gimme, 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 gimme. Until finally God says to Samuel, enough. If those folks want a king, they can have a king. And actually, I've already selected who their king's going to be. At this point, God leads the prophet Samuel to a man named Saul. Say this name with me. Saul. 
And God has Samuel anoint Saul as Israel's first king. Now, seemingly, Saul possesses all the qualities that an earthly king should have. According to the Bible, he is tall. You literally had to look up to him, head and shoulders above the rest. He's good-looking, handsome, charismatic, articulate. As a lot of you know, uh, Amanda and I, we have five-year-old twins in our house, and so that means that we watch a lot of cartoons, a lot of animated movies. And so whenever I picture Saul, this shows you how sophisticated my mind is, but whenever I picture Saul, this is the person who I imagine. <laughs> Who's this guy? Gaston from Beauty and the Beast. Now, if you've ever watched that movie, you'll know that Gaston knows that he's good-looking. He knows just how handsome he is. He's pretty arrogant about it. And the issue with Saul is Saul is arrogant too. Because as soon as Saul assumes the throne, and I believe this happens in 1 Samuel chapter 10, well, as soon as he assumes the throne, all these problems begin to surface. Saul is obstinate. He doesn't listen to God. He's not obedient to God. He takes credit for the things that God does. And so finally God says, I am fed up with Saul. I have rejected him as king. I am taking the kingdom of Israel away from him, and I'm giving it to somebody else, his successor. And so that leads us to our scripture passage for this morning. Uh, this is from the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. And as a reminder, 1 Samuel is the ninth book of the Bible, the ninth book of the Old Testament. You start with what? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 16, uh, verses 1 through 13. If you'd like to follow along, uh, the words are up here on the screens. Now the Lord said to Samuel, you have mourned long enough for Saul. I have rejected him as king of Israel. So fill your flask with olive oil and go to Bethlehem. Find a man named Jesse who lives there, for I have selected one of his sons to be my king. Now let's pause for a moment. We've noted before that Israelite culture is very visual. And so whenever somebody was set apart for the role of king, what would happen is that person would be anointed with oil. In fact, the Hebrew word Messiah means anointed one. Uh, this person had been anointed with oil. This was their coronation ceremony to show that this person had been set apart by God for this very special office. And so Samuel is told to anoint this next person as Israel's next king, uh, just like Saul had been anointed earlier. Uh, verse 2, but Samuel asked, how can I do that? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. Take a heifer with you. The Lord replied, and say that you have come to make a sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you which of his sons to anoint for me. So Samuel did, as the Lord instructed. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town came trembling to meet him. What's wrong, they asked. Do you come in peace? Yes, Samuel replied, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Purify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then Samuel performed the purification rite for Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice tomb. When they arrived, Samuel took one look at Eliab and thought, Surely this is the Lord's anointed. But the Lord said to Samuel, Don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. 
Then Jesse told his son Abinadab to step forward and walk in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, this is not the one the Lord has chosen. Next, Jesse summoned Shimea, but Samuel said, neither is this the one the Lord has chosen. In the same way, all seven of Jesse's sons, imagine having that many sons, and actually he had eight, but all seven of Jesse's sons were presented to Samuel, but Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. Then Samuel asked, are these all the sons you have? They're still the youngest, Jesse replied, but he's out in the fields watching the sheep and goats. Send for him at once, Samuel said. We will not sit down to eat until he arrives. Folks, that's how, we need, that's how you know things are urgent and serious. We're not going to eat a meal until this guy gets here. So Jesse sent for him. He was dark and handsome, with beautiful eyes. And the Lord said, this is the one, anoint him. So as David stood there among his brothers, Samuel took the flask of olive oil he had brought and anointed David with the oil. And the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. And Samuel returned to Ramah. The Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, as this story picks up in 1 Samuel 16, what's Samuel doing? He's upset. He's grieving over Saul's demise. And understandably so, because Samuel had invested a lot of time and energy in Saul. He had high hopes for Saul. He held Saul in high regard. And so God comes to Samuel, and he says, Samuel, stop moping around. I want you to leave your house, go to Bethlehem, to the house of Jesse, and there you will find Saul's replacement. Now, Samuel is not too keen on this idea, is he? Now, there's a reason for this. We have this map up here on the screen. Samuel lives in Ramah, up in the north. Jesse and his sons live in Bethlehem in the south. Can you see Ramah, where the big red dot is, and see Bethlehem all the way south? Well, in order for Samuel to leave Ramah and go to Bethlehem, he has to pass through Gibeah. Can you see Gibeah up here? Does anybody want to take a wild guess as to who lives in Gibeah? Saul. Saul lives in Gibeah because at this time, Jerusalem is not the capital. The king doesn't reign out of Jerusalem. That doesn't happen until David becomes king. Saul lives in Gibeah, and Saul is already paranoid because God's anointing power has left him, and so Samuel fears for his life. He's afraid that Saul's going to kill him because Saul knows that the Lord has rejected him. And the reality is, a person of Samuel's reputation and stature doesn't go somewhere without people talking about it, without people knowing about it. That's always the case when a well-known person goes somewhere, isn't it? For example, back in February, this was like maybe, I don't know, three or four months ago, uh, this gentleman made an appearance at Disney World. Who's this guy? Anybody know? I guess you probably didn't take his photograph if you were at Disney that day. This guy is Michael Jordan. You never heard of Michael Jordan before? He's got the hat on and the sunglasses, and so he's trying to, you know, make himself uh, not so noticeable. But this is Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan shows up at Disney World. So what do people do? They start taking his picture. Now, if I show up to Disney World, do people do that? No. Nobody cares if Chris Jones goes to Disney World. But if Michael Jordan goes to Disney World, oh my gosh, this is such a big deal. 
Well, in some sense, Samuel, 3,000 years ago, he was a celebrity. People knew him. They respected him. They knew his role as a prophet and a judge. And so Samuel is so afraid, oh my goodness, Saul's going to find out about it. If I try to go all the way to Bethlehem and I pass through Gibeah, he's going to have questions and he's going to kill me. God says, hey, time out. I'm God, aren't I? I've thought this through. Take a heifer. Go make a sacrifice. That'll be your cover story. So Samuel takes the heifer, goes to Bethlehem. When he gets to Bethlehem, are the people excited to see him? No. They're terrified because ordinarily, if a prophet came to your community, it was not a friendly visit. It was not because you did something great. It was because you did something bad and corrupt, and that prophet was going to speak judgment against you. And so here the elders of Bethlehem are, and Bethlehem is a small village, probably a few hundred people at most, but they're trembling with fear, and Samuel says, relax, I'm making a sacrifice. And then he invites Jesse, a resident of Bethlehem, to bring his sons to the sacrifice that Samuel's about to perform. Now here's what's really interesting. Jesse never thinks to include his youngest son, David. Think about this for a moment. I mean, presumably, when Samuel comes, the other sons aren't just sitting at the home doing nothing. What are they doing? They're probably out in the fields. They're working as people did back then. It probably took a few hours to get everybody home, to get everybody dressed and ready for the great prophet Samuel. Yet even so, Jesse doesn't think to include David. Overlooks him. Doesn't send for him. And so Samuel meets these seven sons with the impression that these are all the sons. He sees the first son, Eliab, and he thinks to himself, well, surely this guy is God's anointed one. I mean, come on, look at him. He looks like Brad Pitt. He's handsome. He's attractive. This is what God says. Verse 7, but the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his, that is Eliab's, appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So Jesse goes on to parade his, the rest of his sons before Samuel. God says, nope, 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 nope. How many times does God say no? Seven times. This doesn't make any sense to Samuel because he's been told by God to go to Bethlehem. He says, Jesse, I don't get it. Are these all the sons that you have? And Jesse says, well... There's the youngest son. He's looking after the sheep and the goats. Remember, David was a shepherd. Samuel says, are you kidding me? We're not going to eat until he arrives. David comes. God says, that's the man. That's the one. Anoint him. Samuel and Jesse almost miss the man whom God has selected. They're looking for all the wrong qualities. They're so focused on David's age, his youthfulness, his appearance. They completely overlook him. This man whom God wants. Uh, back in the 1960s, uh, Dick Rowe. You ever heard of Dick Rowe? Dick Rowe was one of the most famous talent scouts in the music industry. Now, it's safe to say that Dick Rowe would rather we remember him for his better moments. 
like when he signed the Rolling Stones to a recording contract. Dick Rowe would probably like for us to forget what happened in the year 1962. You see, in 1962, an unpolished group of four musicians auditioned for Rowe, and they left him not just unimpressed, but completely and totally and utterly unimpressed. Not only did Dick Rowe reject the band's desire for a recording contract, but he also purportedly said these now infamous words, groups with guitars are on the way out. <laughs> groups with guitars are on the way out. It reminds me of what King George III said on July 4, 1776, nothing of importance happened this day. Well, turns out that that was wrong too. Well, within one year of Rowe's initial rejection, this band took off and began the historic British invasion with their first number one hit on Billboard's Top 100, I Want to Hold Your Hand, before finally making an iconic appearance here in America via The Ed Sullivan Show. Which band are we talking about? The Beatles. You didn't know Michael Jordan, but you know the Beatles. By 1969, the Beatles had achieved a then record, then record seven simultaneous number one singles in the U.S. and the U.K. Can you imagine overlooking that kind of talent? I mean, we're talking about the Beatles. That's not far off from what happens here in this story. Samuel and Jesse almost overlook not only the person who would become Israel's next king, but Israel's greatest king. I mean, folks, this is the great King David. This is the same David who in 1 Samuel 17, just one chapter later, took down the Philistine warrior Goliath with just a sling and a few stones. This is the same David who united the 12 tribes of Israel. This is the same David who brought together the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. This is the same David whose throne God established forever, from whom the Messiah, Jesus, eventually came. Now, here's what's really interesting, and maybe some of you noticed this when we read the passage, that when David does finally appear before Samuel, after coming in from looking after the sheep and the goats, this is how the writer of 1 Samuel describes David. This is verse 12. So Jesse sent for him, that is David, he was dark and handsome with beautiful eyes, and the Lord said, this is the one, anoint him. Now, wait a minute. Does this seem like a contradiction? Didn't God say earlier in verse 7, don't focus on the outward appearance? Focus instead on the heart. That's what I look at. So if that's the case, how do we make sense of these words? Well, I think it's important to note that what the writer is doing, he's not necessarily quoting God, is he? He's simply describing David in his own words. And he is certainly, this is really important to note, he is certainly not saying that these things are what qualify David to become king. He is not saying that these things are what qualify David to become king. The only thing that qualified David to become king, according to verse 7, what God says is his heart. David is a man after God's own heart. But what did it mean for David to be a man after God's own heart? You ever wondered that before? It certainly didn't mean that David was perfect because, folks, if you have any knowledge of David's life, you'll know that David was far from perfect. At one point when he was king, he abused his kingly power in horrific ways. He seduced a married woman named Bathsheba into a sexual relationship. Remember the story? 
She ended up getting pregnant, and then he had her husband Uriah murdered in battle, one of his own men. I mean, David was a far cry from perfect, and thankfully he did repent of that evil later on. And yet the Bible still gives this description of David, a man after God's own heart. Why? What on earth made David, of all people, a man after God's own heart? Well, the Apostle Paul, who was a follower of Jesus, who established churches in the first century, who wrote 13 books in the New Testament, Paul actually shed some light on what it meant for David to be a man after God's own heart in a sermon that he preached that's recorded in the book of Acts. This is from Acts chapter 13, verses 21 and 22. Paul says, Then the people begged for a king. He's talking about the people of Israel, the Israelites. Then the people begged for a king, and God gave them Saul, son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, who reigned for 40 years. But God removed Saul and replaced him with David, a man about whom God said, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. Let's read this last line together. He will do everything I want him to do. That last line is what it boils down to. He will do everything I want him to do. You see, what made David so close to the heart of God, what made David so connected to God, it had nothing to do with his age, had nothing to do with his youthfulness, had nothing to do with his appearance, had nothing to do with his abilities. It had everything to do, everything to do with his obedience. When God said, go, David went. When God said, jump, David jumped. When God confronted David with his sin, which God did through the prophet Nathan, right? David didn't make excuses. He took responsibility, and he repented. That was his predecessor's problem all along. Saul might have looked the part on the outside, but on the inside, Saul had a heart that was hard, disobedient, a heart that refused to bend and adapt to the will of God and God's purposes. In fact, notice what the prophet Samuel says to Saul when Saul is rejected as king. This is one chapter earlier. Uh, This is 1 Samuel 15. But Samuel replied to Saul, what is more pleasing to the Lord, your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice? Listen, obedience is better than sacrifice and submission is better than offering the fat of rams. Samuel is reminding King Saul that religious rituals mean nothing if those religious rituals aren't also coupled with obedience to God. You see, in our case, in your case, in my case, it's all well and good to come to a worship service like we're doing right now. Listen to a sermon, experience some music. It's all well and good to go to a Bible study, dive into Scripture, learn more about God's Word. It's a whole other thing, though, to actually live as a follower of God in this world day in and day out, to yield to God, to surrender to God every single area of my life, not some areas of my life, not most areas of my life. Discipleship is an a la carte. It's every single area, every single facet of my life, of my existence, like my finances. I'm going to put God first in my finances. I'm going to give consistently and regularly and sacrificially to the ministry of my local church so that the ministry of Jesus can go forward in this world. Or put God first in my career. I'm going to make decisions in my career that honor God. Or put God first in my marriage. I'm going to make God the center of my marriage. Put God first in my parenting, how I treat people, how I connect to people, how I relate to people. 
Folks, for us to be a people after God's own heart, as David was, it comes down to our obedience. This is the question I'm going to leave us with. Do we actually listen to God? Do what God says? Or do we do our own thing instead? During the Vietnam War, Captain Ray Baker flew for the Strategic Air Command. The Air Force had conditioned him to run from his barracks straight to his airplane at the sound of a buzzer. Captain Ray Baker could not begin to tell you how many times he dropped his utensils in the middle of dinner, ran out of the barracks, and straight to the airplane when he heard that buzzer. Well, at one point, Captain Baker was visiting his family, and they lived in California. And they decided to go out to eat at his favorite Mexican restaurant. And so the server came and brought the meal, and they were enjoying the meal and talking to each other. Well, all of a sudden, Ray just stood up without notice, and he just ran out of the building and into the parking lot. Nobody knew what was going on. So finally, his nephew caught up with him. And his nephew was out of breath, and he said, Uncle Ray, Uncle Ray, Uncle Ray, what are you doing? Where are you going? Why are you running? And he said, where's my airplane? I heard the buzzer. They realized what had happened. There was a buzzer in the kitchen of the restaurant that told the servers it was time to pick up the meal, that the meal was ready to bring to the table. Ray had been trained to drop everything at the sound of that buzzer. Imagine if we in the church, you and me, if we followed God with such unquestioned, unreserved obedience. Imagine if we dropped everything like Captain Baker did at the sound of our master's command. Maybe you feel as if God is calling you to do something during the season of your life. Maybe it's to give more. Maybe it's to serve more. Maybe it's to volunteer or lead a Bible study. But there's a part of you that's holding back. Don't. Don't hold back. Follow God even when it's tough. And find that when you do, you'll be a man, a woman, a person after God's own heart. May it be so for all of us, by the grace of God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. God, you use imperfect people, like David, to accomplish your purposes. And that's true to this very day. Thank you for your commitment to us. Thank you that you never give up on us. God, I pray that you would replace our hard hearts with soft ones that are obedient to you, that bend and adapt to the will and purposes that you place in our lives. God, may we be like David. Continue to use us in ways that you deem fit. We ask all these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.